0: Hey, Upsell friends out there in the universe. Helen here. Greg is right over there.
1: And on today's episode of the Eater Upsell, we have a huge star of the Portland scene. It's the one and only Naomi Pomeroy. Hi, Naomi. Hey.
0: Okay, you stay right there. We're not going to talk to you for a few minutes because, Greg, I want to talk to you about something else.
1: Okay. Okay. Okay, so we're food writers. We know a lot of other food writers that live in different cities, and occasionally, one of the great things about working for Eater is that we all get to get together a few times a year. Maybe they come to New York, or maybe somebody comes to LA, and you get to talk about the different food scenes in different cities. Um, it's a very kind of natural thing if you're, you have friends that have your same profession in a different city. Anyway, um, something I'm more and more picking up on is like very intense city food rivalries, you know? Like, there are Mm -hmm. some that are pretty obvious and big, like the burger thing, I feel like. Is it like Shake Shack versus In-N-Out? That used to be one for New York and L.A., you know, or like pizza rivalries. Like, you know of these, these sort of city rivalries I speak of, yeah?
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: I'm starting to think that, like, these are all bullshit and we don't need to have them anymore. That they're not helping anything.
0: I love this perspective. We should all just love each other.
1: I just don't think it's really fun to talk about that stuff anymore.
0: Down with city rivalries. Every yeah. burger is beautiful.
1: I'm sure when I lived in New York, and I still do think New York's like this incredible place for a million different kinds of things to eat and drink, you know, definitely said, oh, yeah, there could never be a better city than, than New York. But like, what if New York is just like one of the array of great cities? You know what I'm saying?
0: I think that this is a perspective that literally everyone who doesn't live in New York has already come to.
1: Right. Like, okay. it's only uh-huh.
0: New Yorkers who think New York is better than everywhere else.
1: Hmm. So, yeah. So, why is that, though? Is it just because Be- it's so shitty cause... to live in New York a lot of the time that you kind of have yeah, to... Yeah,
0: so you have to tell yourself a story that, like, it's worth it.
1: But then it's kind of shitty to live in a lot of places. Pretty much every city has its, you know, you know reasons to get you down. I just... I think that the national media, the print media specifically, kind of likes to create these rivalries, you know? I just don't really know if it's worth our time anymore.
0: Is it like we're trying to turn food into sports?
1: I think that's it, but I don't know. I kind of got into food and restaurants and stuff like that because like, I find sports fucking boring and don't care about them at all.
0: I am a, a fairly moderately competitive person. I'm an extremely competitive person. And I, I understand the impulse behind wanting to say my city creates X and your city's version of that is garbage and you suck and everything about you is terrible and you should never have children and your city should in fact be wiped from the face of the earth because my city is superior to yours. Like I I get the motivation to want to say that Mm -hmm. or to even just feel it, to feel it in your heart, to be like, you know what, this is the best thing in the entire world. But I I agree with you. I think that um, it is certainly the case that there exists – a hamburger that is objectively better than a different hamburger
1: yes but right
0: i don't know if we have to wrap all of that up in geographic
1: identity, identity. yeah i mean yeah. something
0: that someone once said or tweeted or, or something that that has stuck with me through the years is this idea that like sports teams for example like local sports teams have players who are from all over the place, right? Like if, if you play for like the Cincinnati Bengals, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you that's a grew real up team. Cincinnati. The Cincinnati that Bengals? is a real, a real team. Like the band football. from the eighties. No, like the tiger, like oh, the Bengal.
1: Got it. Got it. Uh-huh. Um,
0: So if you, if you play for, for Cincinnati, that doesn't mean that you grew up in Cincinnati. And in fact, it doesn't even mean that you live in Cincinnati right. during the off season. All it means is that like, that's your team. Right. And so, and, and players rotate so frequently and, Everyone is from all over the place, and, like, you play for one team one year, and then your contract gets moved, and you're somewhere else, and blah, 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 blah. Right. And like, basically, unless unless you're LeBron James... Right. There's no real connection to the city that you're from. So this, this amazing quote was, like, listen, like, given all of that, being a fan of a sports team is basically just an allegiance to their graphic design.
1: Right, and their gear, and their... Right. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Like, the players... Right. The players don't even stay the same. None of them are from here. None of them live here. All I like is like the shirt you're wearing. I, I identify with right. the guys wearing that shirt because I like that shirt. And I think that the food thing is kind of the same way. Right. It's like I don't necessarily objectively think that the pizza in Pittsburgh is objectively better than the pizza in Cleveland.
1: Right. But like
0: I like the way the Pittsburgh skyline looks in the background of my Instagram of this lights of pizza more. And so my allegiance is to Pittsburgh.
1: Right. Um, I think that's such a great analogy the sports thing. Because also if you look at any big city, um, it's not like all the big players, the chefs, the restaurant people that live there are all like born like, you know, in that city or whatever. You know, it's like kind of the great American story. What even
0: is living somewhere?
1: Like maybe we all kind of live in one big city called America. Did you ever think about that?
0: Whoa. Mind blown emoji GIF. That guy from the 70s. Yeah. Wow, Greg. Wow.
1: I mean, there are some- Now is a
0: time for unity. I mean- Yes.
1: Yeah. Maybe we let should Let us just... set
0: aside our burger and pizza rivalries and come together as brothers and sisters on this great nation.
1: Yeah. I understand context behind dining. I mean, but I, I do think that like you can make a slice of New York City fucking pizza in LA. It's not impossible to do that, you know? Or- You know, Des Moines or Seattle or wherever. Yeah. If you have the right stuff and you have the right technology, you can do it. It's not like, you know, that like certain things can only be good in certain places, you know. That's a beautiful
0: message of of love and hope, especially considering how divided and fragmented our nation can feel these days. Like, we might not all agree about which humans deserve human rights, but we can all agree that pizza is good.
1: And now on the Eater Up Zone, here's Naomi Pomeroy. When we first started uh,
2: cooking... It was like, listen, like, my way or the highway? Like, I, you know, we didn't used to do changes or substitutions at Beast because, well, partially because we didn't have the staff to accommodate. You know, it was just like me and my sous chef and I worked 120 hours a week and we had no help with anything, you know, and we couldn't.
1: Wait, I'm sorry, 120 hours a week? (laughs) I I
2: was just doing the math on that in my head. Like (laughs) That could have been an exaggeration, but I know that it was often (laughs) between 90 and 100. A lot of time. Like, you know.
1: Oh, my God.
2: That's just kind of what what you have to do I think in this business to kind of get started and um part of that might kind of cause a little bit of anger (laughs) sometimes and and extreme exhaustion and um I think in the beginning of all of our careers we were sort of John and Vinny and I especially were talking about how we used to sort of say like yeah we're never going to do anything special for anyone that comes in if you don't eat gluten like get the f out you know so okay good great yeah it's a podcast (laughs) um Um, We
0: we are regularly the only top food podcast on the iTunes store that has the explicit rating. Great. It'll be like a list of 20 episodes and then ours is just like
2: there are many (laughs) swear words on this show. Okay. Well, I'll try to increase you. Um, So anyway, you know, I I think over time what I I was trying to say, you know, related to what you were saying is that I think chefs have become nicer. Um, Just one, because we sort of have to and And two, because you know it just gets it gets really old and tiring to be like upset all the time. It's you know? exhausting it's too it's too intense. It's like the world is crazy enough. Like let's just all like relax and try to have a good time.
0: I don't know if it's if it's even specifically a food thing. like I think that the kitchen environment definitely you know it's physical and it's verbal, and that certainly lends itself to a certain degree of yelling to express displeasure. But like I think in almost any profession, especially one where you might be in a position of having to be kind of a creative lead at a young age you're gonna feel really rigid and like no this is my fucking art right like this is my vision I'm doing my thing and then time and experience helps you just totally develop less of a sense of rigidity
2: yeah that's for sure and also you know there's a little chip on the shoulder that can happen um when you're
1: when you're young
0: yeah
2: youth is terrible (laughs) don't be young guys (laughs)
1: Sucks. I love hearing anybody talk about like, yeah, well, you know, we, the the, the culture is changing a little bit in the kitchen and or not a little a lot, bit, you know, or we're nicer a lot. um It's like, I don't know if you can put your finger on anything specifically, but like over the years in your kitchens, do you think that you've developed any sort of rules or guidelines for that sort of?
2: Yeah, I, I
1: have. How you run your kitchen that is different than when you started?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, one thing is that that I would say hasn't changed about the way that I run my kitchen is that I've always said to everyone very, very explicitly, you we need to have fun while we're working. You know, like a, a big part of our day has to be communicating with each other, getting to know each other as a team hanging out, talking, being together. You know, like at Beast, the way that it works is, you know, we're not open during the day, right? What The whole staff comes in around 9 o'clock and in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's obvious. But, I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? So we come in at 9 o'clock, and we just prep all day until we do line up at 5. So we've worked a full work day already. And then the work begins. And then we start doing dinner service. So um, a lot of the day is spent, you know, just talking about a family and relating to each other and telling jokes and talking about some show that we watched or whatever. And, you know, I think that that translates into the diner's experience. I've always really thought that the way that the restaurant feels when you come into it, I mean, mind you, it's an open kitchen, so it it does have kind of a vibe to it, right? You could tell if people in the back are, like, pissed off at each other, (laughs) you know?
1: God, that's so true. I've never thought about that. But yeah, um, I definitely feel like you can get that sense as a diner when you walk in. Like maybe it's some subconscious thing of like, is this some place I would like to work? Like if I was, you know, a chef. Well, it's like- also like
0: going to someone's home and like, you know, like if your if your friends invite you over and you walk in and you know they have just like paused in the middle of a fight. Oh, you could because feel the are it. right. It's like right. oh
2: my god, I'm walking to the book.
1: And there's a lot of <laughs> restaurants where you feel like just that feeling too. Uh,
2: I 100 you know? <laughs> percent agree with that, and that's why I just sort of don't allow that kind of bullshit, bad attitude, kind of, I'm better than you are kind of posturing situation that can happen in kitchens, which, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a prevalent thing in kitchens, right? Like people sort of like the hazing or, you know, things like that. And I just never, I've never allowed that. I've always said, we need to make sure that we're creating an, an awesome environment because people can feel that. So that hasn't changed at all. Um... In in some ways, I would say that in the beginning, I, w- I would say I was a little reckless with my partying. Um, you know, like we definitely would like go in the back and like drink tequila while we were working, and then come back out, and I'd put on like some dance music. And um, Micah Paredes, who was my um, sous chef and then chef de cuisine for like six years, for the first like six and a half years of the restaurant. You know, we we lived together. I was single. She was single. We just were kind of partying a lot. And then that would be the biggest change, right? Like over time, it's like we just – neither of us do that anymore. Um, She doesn't work for me anymore. But the restaurant's gotten a little bit more serious, but not in a – Bad way and in a really good way, you know, in a way where we're not telling people to like fuck off with their dietary restrictions. We're telling people like, yeah, we will accommodate you. Like it's kind of just that growing up thing. Yeah.
0: And Beast is a very unique style of restaurant, I think. I, I have not eaten there though it's been on the, I haven't been to Portland for more I went to Portland once for 15 hours and oh. it was not enough time no, but it's not um time. but it's a it's a small restaurant right 25 26 seats
2: yeah we have 26 seats and um we just do two seatings a night it's um yeah 6 and 8:45 and it's all one menu set menu six courses
0: which is uh, it, Greg and I have talked about this before in the show. That is
2: my favorite style of restaurant. Like, I, I love it. think it should be because, look, I mean, what do you want to do when you go out to any restaurant? You're like, uh, ask the chef what they would eat if they were eating here, right? Because they know what's what's happening. Yeah. They know what's best. They saw the tomatoes. They look amazing. You know, they picked out the, you know, beef cheek or whatever. And and I think that's how we do it. And it, we do it partially for ourselves because it's like a selfish thing. We're creative, people and we change the menu every two weeks so it's like you know we just have the things that we want to eat at that time we want to touch that product and make that food for you and share it with you so it's partially selfish but it's partially about you know what is what is best in that moment
0: it also i think solves the communal dining problem to Mm -hmm. do these sort of strict Mm seatings you know um a lot of people hate communal dining it's a polarizing issue communal
2: dining (laughs) Girl, you don't know. (laughs) I'm telling you, people say, "Oh my God, how long has Beast been open?" Right? People, I don't know why, but like it takes people a long time to catch up. You know, people think that Beast has been open for like two or three years. Sometimes it's been open for what (laughs) almost ten. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey,
1: that seems fresh. It seems. Hey, I
2: know. know, It's it's like you don't look (laughs) a day over twenty-one. The bloom is still on the rose. But <laughs> thank God this is radio, because that sure as shit isn't true. You're beautiful. Um, thanks. But um, you know, I so anyway, Beast has been open for almost ten years. In September it'll be ten. And I when people say like, Oh my god, I haven't made it in yet I'm like, I just want to reach out and give them a little hug and say, to be totally honest, I might not come to Beast either because because of I don't want to
0: sit with other people. But by <laughs> I go back and forth on hating communal dining and hating the people who hate communal dining, and I don't know. It's just like which hate do I want to have today? But but I think that the by saying look like we do these two seatings and it's a set menu. Part of what is so frustrating about the about communal dining when it's done poorly is a combination of, like, the clatter of service that's surrounding you on such an intimate level. It's busy. And also, so frequently, communal dining coincides with benches, like fucking benches. Oh, yeah. No, we
2: have really great chairs. In the beginning, our chairs were really uncomfortable, but I had this guy come in and, like, totally design a brand-new chair for (laughs) us, and they're all custom-made, and they're very beautiful and comfortable. But but I think what I don't like about communal dining, I mean, I think a lot of people think that I tried to make it that way on purpose like that that I designed it because I wanted people to like sit next to each other and like snuggle and talk which isn't totally true um at its best it can become that and it's incredible to see people like sit at a table of eight people and you have like four couples that sit down and at the end of it they're all like planning their next vacation together. I mean, it does happen.
0: But that can only happen if the courses are happening at the same time. That's true. Like you're
2: sharing the experience
0: instead of like me having to like do that weird like gymnastics pommel horse move over the middle of a bench so that I can sit down (laughs) while the couple to my left is on their dessert course and like the solo diner to my right is like if you're wearing a fucking dress and you're and like the host puts you in the middle of a bench, there is no solution that does not involve half the room seeing your crotch (laughs)
2: It's awful.
0: It's deeply awful. Wow. Maybe
2: that's why they do that though. You never know. Oh god. But you know, anyway, I really I I only made two big long communal tables at Beast because that was the best way to get the highest number of seats into the restaurant. sure. Um, And and that was really the only solution. And actually, everything that Beast is, including a six-course set menu, it it came from, it, it was born of necessity. We didn't do that because we were like, hey, we have to do this set menu thing. We did it because that was how we could assure that the business model worked. Frankly, we were like we did the math and we were like, if we have all these two tops in here and it's Portland and Portlanders are are particularly notorious for being really cheap, everyone's gonna come in <laughs> and sit here and have like one cheese plate and share a glass of wine and be here for three and a half hours while they talk about whatever. And we wouldn't make any money. Yeah. So we had to set something where we're like, okay, well, this is how much we would need to collect in a night to make this work. How would we kind of worked the equation backwards when how how would we do that? And the answer is everybody has to spend at least a hundred bucks in order for us to make this work. So that's how we do it.
0: I mean that's that feels like the same philosophy that is behind the whole ticketing phenomenon mm-hmm. with restaurants. It is. It's just like look, we we need to approach this like it's a real business. Like what's the PL on our yeah. Daily operations or monthly operations.
2: Well, I've been thinking about that, too. I mean, that's like a question that I have, too. Like, I've I've kind of been toying around with the idea of, of abolishing the two seating times, which would totally mm. mess with everything that you're saying. Yeah, so, so maybe I, later we'll talk about you this. You can off. tell me on this. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I want to continue the conversation because one thing that does happen— in the heart of winter in Portland is that I don't have 26 guests clamoring to eat dinner at 9 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> For two and a half hours. Right. You know, I mean, you're out of there at like 1130. So, um, so I've been trying to sort of solve that problem. Like would I get more people in if I allowed the staggered seating? But then honestly, on the flip side, I'd have to have more cooks because I only have two cooks working in the kitchen at night. Because that's all it takes, and that's all there's really space for back there. So I don't really know. I'm. It's We're going to be 10, and it's like, well, I have to sort of figure out, like, how to stay relevant in some ways. Do you? Mm-hmm. I think so, absolutely. Like, there's no question about it. Um, one thing that I th- I would say in answering an earlier question, sort of like how the restaurants evolved and changed, um, is that I don't write every menu anymore. Um, I've found that the key – to my success has always been empowering the people around me. Like I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. And I also realize that if I'm going to be stepping away from the restaurant to come to New York or go to Minneapolis or LA, like I have to have a team in place that feels like 100% behind whatever it is that they're doing. And I think that the most successful chefs are the ones that can kind of relinquish certain controls and, say, give their team some creative input and empower them to, like, have ownership over it. I mean, I think s- any successful business is like that. Like, who needs their boss, like, coming back in and being like, you know, sticking their finger and everything and being like, well, my idea is this and my idea is that, and then walking away? Because we're not, I mean, we're not <laughs> experts anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like right. uh, young, young people are the people that are, keep this business strong and keep it relevant and interesting. And I think, you know, my, like my style of cooking is just my style of cooking. You know, if you, cl- if you put a blindfold on and I brought you a plate of food and someone else, you, you could tell that it was mine no matter what I made. I think. You yeah. know, if you got it's to like know handwriting, me a little bit, it's like fingerprints. Yeah. You can't change it. And and if if you want your diners to continue coming back in and being interested in what's going on, a great way to do that is to empower someone on your team that's talented and has creativity because they they, they love it and so then the diners love it. It kinda of goes back to that philosophy of is everyone having fun?
0: This feels like it's 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 hand in hand with what you're saying about becoming nicer. Also, like, you know, part of the – anger is not quite the right word, but part of that, like, intensity of a young chef or a young creative person in any field is that feeling of, like, I have to do everything myself. This is my vision. It is only my vision.
2: I can't even tell you. Like, that is the absolute – that is almost the mark of, like, a young chef that's, like – ready to burn out, burn themselves to the ground. It's just that, that feeling of like, I have to, you know, go in at six o'clock in the morning and I have to, you know, control everything and I have to touch like every single plate. And I definitely was like that for years. I think that was part of like the heavy drinking and sort of the like crazy making is that like, what was I going to do? Like I was working myself to the bone because I felt like no one else could do it. And maybe there were points when it was true. I mean, I couldn't afford to have staff in the beginning, you know. So I just kind of built it from scratch.
1: But it's better to have uh, a team there then and and to have some people that take some authority and so that you don't have to be there all the time doing all that stuff. Is that the case?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think it makes the whole restaurant better when there's – you know, because otherwise it's it was very disruptive. Like if I'm if I make write a menu and it's my vision and all my control, and then I'm gone for a week, it's like well, that's not the same as if my chef de cuisine writes a menu. And I mean, it goes through extreme vetting. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, I mean, we're we're I'm looking at it. I'm like, well, what about this? What about that? Or I don't really know how I feel about that dish, you know, you need to make that dish for me so that I can try it before we put it on the menu. I mean, we we definitely, there's a lot of like rigorous, um, you know, talking and creative process. But then, it you know, it comes to be that it's this thing that is, it it represents my team there very, very well, and everyone can stand behind it.
1: So what are the things that every beast menu has to have? Like, what do you guys talk about when you're putting together a new menu, which sounds like something that happens fairly often? Yeah,
2: every two weeks, actually. Um, yeah. It used to actually be – that's one thing that has changed, too. We used to change every single week. That's a, a breakneck oh pace. Yes. And I think, you know, what, what was happening when we changed every week is that the menu would be like in its – still in its incubation stage, like, on the Wednesday, the first Wednesday, like, there, it. I mean, it's always going to be delicious no matter what. Like, nobody should be afraid to come in on the first Wednesday of a menu change. I mean, it's, it's just that little things might change. And, you know, oh, we'd be like, oh, there should be a garnish over here, or this needs a little crunch, or whatever. And then by Saturday, the menu would be, or Sunday, the menu would be, like, Wham bam, like totally done and ready to go, and just so perfect. And then we'd change again.
0: Yeah, just so just pulling the rug out from under yourselves. Yeah,
2: it's kind of fun to do that. It's a wild ride. But um, we we decided that we would use that second week of a menu to kind of bring forth the, the next one and do some testing and things like that. I mean, we used to never sit down for a lineup. We would like you know i don't know does everyone know what a lineup is i mean a lineup is in a restaurant where where the servers come in and the cooks sit down and we like we taste through the wine pairings and we taste every single dish and We never did that. We would just fucking start making stuff and then put it out and be like, I hope this is good, you know. (laughs) I mean, we would taste it and, and, you know, all that. But, like, now we have an official, formal, like, 5 p.m. It's like a dress rehearsal. It's awesome. Yeah. So, But I I missed your question. I mean, I kind of went off the rails there on that. So it's six courses, right? Each menu? It is. And so basically every – look, everyone does this differently. Like, when I write a menu, I'm writing – um, from some weird special place that I can't like, really explain to people, um, it's the well. It is. I call it. I mean, it's like it comes out. I, it's more like the sky. My mine comes. I mean, I don't know if your stuff comes from the well, which is like below, um, which means basically that you're the devil. No,
0: I haven't really thought through my creative <laughs> metaphor yet.
1: Uh, yeah, I haven't thought where my land, sea, air. Where the creative energy but comes from. But so okay, from. so
0: things fall from the sky into s- your. He-
2: you become the, the vessel. For I'm just it. a vessel. I say the that all the time. stuff that comes right. out of the sky.
1: The creative muse is speaking through. It you. It is,
2: and what happens for me is that it just like it kind of writes itself. Like I, I don't really know how to say that other than just like maybe I pick a starting point, and um, you know, it's it might be the entree. Like it might be like okay, you know, it, so we have six courses, and like the. It, I think of it like in a really sort of symphonic way or like in a bell curve kind of situation where it's like you know it starts out kind of quiet and like yes then you have like the buildup and then there's like the the peak moment and then you're coming back again it's beautiful and I always think like you know so so like that middle dish the 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 third course of the six is always kind of like, The richest, the heartiest, you know, like, I mean, for the most part, unless it's the middle of the summer, which can shift things around a little bit, that's like that, that's the meat moment, right? It's the crescendo. It's like the big explosive climactic center. And so we always, we always do serve meat, um, for that course and it can be like lots of different things. Um, we just did this just really beautiful, um, braised beef cheek. Um, and we did these little, um, this is for my dinner and animal actually, but we did these little pastas, um, anulotes filled with a smoked potato puree. And then we shaved some horseradish and some um, mm. 10 year aged white cheddar. I'm making and, such a blissed out face right and now. And then, that like, so good. you know, <laughs> I'm a, so hungry. Little pea tendrils, like, kind of sauteed in there and, and some crispy fried shallots. It was a beautiful dish, but you know, so that would be like that, all the rich, kind of heavy flavors. But, you know, in the beginning, so the, the first course is usually, like, pretty light and bright. Um, I mean, it depends. It, it, it can vary. That, that could happen somewhere else in the meal. But it has to happen somewhere. We used to always do – this is another big change. We used to always do a charcuterie plate as the second course, kind of famously. Like there's – you know, if people have seen pictures of it. If you go online and, like, Google beast and food, you probably would see a picture of a, of a charcuterie plate. Um, but we actually—it is the thing that
1: pops into my okay, mind. But we stopped doing I it. Your name? Don't freak out. Oh, you did. Yeah. We're keeping
2: it fresh. Yeah. Here's why. <laughs> like last, and you know I'm gonna be totally, totally frank. Like last year, in the winter, like in you know January, February, and March, um, we we slowed down pretty significantly. It was kind of like this, like whoa, what is this? Like our sales are down 20%, you know, it was something big. Yikes. And I was like, yeah. what the fuck? You know, like at first it was like in January, I was like, oh, it's just kind of slow, you know, like it's just a weird year, whatever. So I I noticed this kind of pattern starting to form. And I was like, whoa, we have to figure out what's happening here. And I think, you know, I I had always been that person that was sort of like – You know, if people don't like it, like, screw them kind of person. You know, I never read any of my reviews. I was just like, whatever.
1: You seriously never read any of your reviews? I would think that would be the most impossible thing not to Uh -uh. do. I self Google like every day.
2: Really, yeah, I can't. I I just I I think it was like people just didn't always understand it, and I was I, frankly I was too busy for a lot of the time. At some point, I started to have like managers that would read the reviews and like you know let us know if if somebody <laughs> you know kept hating something. But um, you know, and then generally I think I think that like you know Yelp, I will definitely go on record as saying Yelp is to be wildly distrusted, wildly. Oh yeah. But but I feel like you know, at the end of the day, when you're a business owner, I mean, I'm, a, I'm the only owner of, of beast. Like I have to, I have a hundred percent accountability to how that place is working. And, you know, I, I realized, so this is like a long story version of why I took the charcuterie plate off, but the, I could never find any complaints about the food. Like everybody was like, it's delicious. It's great. It's yummy. Blah, blah, blah. Like every once in a while, somebody would be like, I thought there'd be more meat or, or like, you know, something stupid <laughs> like that. Um, but I uh, I noticed that people kind of felt like it was the same. Like I read a couple of reviews of people saying like, yeah, like go here once or twice. But like you don't you don't have to keep going back because it's kind of like, you know, once you've gone there, you've and I kind of felt that way about the French laundry. Honestly, I mean, I love the French laundry. It was a wonderful meal. I can't visualize myself like heading back to oh, the yeah. French laundry again.
1: I think they're having that very same problem right now as a matter of fact. Yeah,
2: and I think that that's sort of – that is sort of the crux of what's happening, right, is staying, staying relevant. I mean you can't just rest on your laurels. And I'm not saying that you are, right. You're continuing to like push and pump out the stuff. But what I realized about the charcuterie plate specifically is that it had the same shape. Every time. So it would be like, even though all the elements, there were like six or seven different items on this plate, the way that they were arranged was like this the clock, right, of little pieces on this round plate. Very beautiful fresh like salad in the middle. And I kind of miss it. But at the same time, it made, I think, visually, people feel like they were having the same meal every time they were coming. It in. was a psychological sticking. Right. Right. Uh huh. This is really mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. So I was like, you guys, I think we need to stop doing that because that's what people are wrong because right. they're not having the same meal every time they come in. But, you know, back in the past, we did usually almost always start with a soup. That was really common, too. So it was like those first two things, even though it was a different soup every week, it doesn't matter. If people have soup every time they're starting, they're going to feel like it's the same thing. So we made this menu revamp, and it was like and, – and Jake who um, Jake Stevens, who was my chef to cuisine for the last three years, is like – he's a pasta guy. Like, he, you know. And I used to be really mm-hmm. rigid and be like, you know what? Pasta is not French. We're not turning this place into an Italian restaurant, Jake. And – I don't know. He's really good at making pasta, and he was excited about it. So I was like, "Fuck it, make some yeah. pasta." I mean, France touches Italy. Like there are parts of France where there's totally pasta, yeah, like so- organically. It, yeah, sure, why not? And then the other little thing I noticed is that um, it, Portland's got really um, trafficky. Like it's it's gotten it's changed. Like the cars, it's busy. Okay, it's really I mean, it's, cool. it's busy mm. compared People to how it used love to be. Portland, yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, the growth is is massive. But one thing that happened in that, um, you know, Beast is in Northeast Portland, so we're not very close to downtown. Um, but nothing in Portland is far away. So it's like when I say not close, I mean like on a good day, it might take fifteen minutes to get there in the car. Like it's no big deal. Mm. But on a bad day, on a Friday. It could be 45 minutes or an hour, you know, and that never used to be that way. But one thing that was happening, I noticed in the reviews, is that people were arriving um, to be on time for their reservation. like, And sometimes they would get there at like 5.30 because they were trying to judge and they weren't sure how long it would take. Oh, and the reservation would be at 6. Yes, and we don't – in the past, we would be like, well – cattle wait outside (laughs) you know and so you know in portland as as you all know it pretty much rains every day so there's not really waiting space at beast and you know like the server would be like vacuuming and we'd be like all this you know the kitchen would be scrambling and we'd be like trying to figure this out or that out and like you know and we see the first guests and the first thing that happens is it's like that oh shit moment like oh, we need yeah. to be ready for service.
1: Not not good for anyone to be like 20 minutes early to the party. You no,
2: know, it's not. But like it's kind of unavoidable. I mean, one thing that we've done to mitigate that is that um, three and a half years ago, I opened a cocktail bar across the street called Expatriate. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of times we can just send people over there. But, um, you know, one, one thing that we did change at Beast was I realized that that moment, that first moment that we touch customers can't be an oh shit moment. Like it has to be, it has to, you know, I don't want to see your face and be like, oh God,
0: you know, because that throws the diner off. Like you walk in the door and they're like, why are you here? And
2: you're like, I feel welcomed and ready for hospitality. Yeah. And so what we shifted was we said, you know what? Like welcome. Welcome thank you for taking the time to get here. Like I told everyone in the restaurant, like even if you're in the kitchen and you're like, you know, grilling some asparagus or whatever, you have to like step out from behind the line. And if like, if the servers are in the back, like printing menus, somebody has to go to those people and say, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And then we get them seated so that, you know, like, I mean, not maybe at 530, but like soon thereafter like 5:45 um and we get them a little like half glass of sparkling wine and a little oh. um amuse bouche and we never used to do that but like that has been really transformative too where it's like oh my god now i'm getting some free shit yeah. you know and it's like yeah. oh my god yeah, I, w- moment, I mean i would love that like i
0: feel like i'm i'm such a i'm totally, sus- I mean, I think like everybody, completely susceptible to these like little gestures of like you're in the in crowd. Yeah. You know, like if someone's yeah. like, oh yeah. yeah, totally cool, like you're gonna watch us vacuum, but we're gonna be psyched that you're here and you're gonna like see behind the curtain and like watch us prep and we're gonna
2: be like, we're so glad. I come in. I'll be like, oh my god, I love you forever Yeah, and so that those two things, like just the, the switching the charcuterie and then switching like, you know, the the attitude and the energy of the of the entrance of the guests has been remarkable. And, and so anyway, it really shifted things. things. um and yeah it's been good I mean we've picked back up again I can't we're not at like 2014 numbers yet it's still (laughs) I mean that's frankly there's part of that 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 that, that's because I won a beard award that year um you -hmm. know and and so that really moves
0: the needle winning a beard award I
2: I think so it's hard to say I'm curious about
0: this like I don't know I mean it's a Congratulations! Thank right, you. it's a huge deal yeah. to win a Beard Award, and it's and I, you know, within the universe of people who obsessively pay attention to food, it's a massive honor, and I think it is the kind of thing that can often bring chefs and restaurants onto the radars of people who might not have otherwise known about them. But I'm I'm genuinely curious what the reach is of the Beard Award into not that like
2: far. the population, not that at large. far. Like I say, I won a Beard Award, and people are like, "But you don't have any facial hair, you
1: know?" <laughs> like it's they don't know. I mean. This might be a weird question, but not as far as, say, Top Chef Masters involved. Yeah, because you, were on, you yeah. were
2: on my favorite ever
0: season of Top Chef Masters. <laughs> that was season two, right? Or I, season three. I, I, I remember loving that season. I'm not
2: sure which one it was. It was a really good you season. You guys, like, full confession, like, I don't, I don't watch the shows that I'm on either. Like, I really, you know, <laughs> I can't handle it.
1: It's okay. I don't listen to this podcast. Just kidding. Okay. Actually, uh, <laughs> I love
2: this podcast. <laughs> Maybe I should, but I just I just can't handle it. Somebody asked even last night, like, oh my God, like, what was it like being on Top Chef Masters? And I'm like, that was like seven years ago. I don't remember six years, a uh, long time ago. But uh, yes, people still come into the restaurant every night because of it. Like, it definitely is a career booster. Um, and it's a, you know, it's an interesting question about being on TV, like because some people do it I feel like this is maybe just not true but in my mind I see young people that are like I want to go on Top Chef you know um and I for me I was like fucking no I don't want to do that absolutely not but and the first time I got asked to be on a show it was Iron Chef and I had only ever seen Iron Chef Japan like I had never even seen the American version. And I asked one of my servers, like, should I do this? And she was like, yes, you should absolutely do it. It's a great, c- really cool show. And it was like the most fun thing I've ever done. I loved it so much. Shooting it's that show is so incredible.
0: You know, it's coming back. Oh, that's great. It's like the most exciting news of my
2: so, life right now. So, so I, um, I did that a little begrudgingly, enjoyed the process, and then continued Who to, are you who are you competing against? Jose Garces. And he hadn't he hadn't um, you know, like when we filmed, it took forever for the episode to come out because when we filmed he hadn't Actually been announced as the winner of his season. It's oh, so like a right. you know, time delay. Sure. So,
1: so you had to sign some contract. Hell I guess, yeah, that I did. Like it was a, a
2: closed screening. It was like my dad was there and like that was about okay. it. It was really cute. What was your
1: secret ingredient? Um truffles.
2: Oh. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And I didn't win. You probably
1: had that on lock, right? Well,
2: I didn't win, but I definitely should have. And I think that, that seems fair. You know, like, to be honest, like, I was definitely robbed because I think that he, he was, like, young and they they definitely wanted to show that he was going to I mean, Jose Garces is a great, great chef. Like, don't get me wrong. And a super nice person. But um, I think it's weird that you can win on taste, which I did, and not win. Yeah, that seems pretty <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> like, I yeah. mean, I it's what it's not like I made it look ugly. Yeah. It just well, I mean, I think that the I think the parameters are like maybe like creativity and like visual and then taste and it's like how could you how could you actually weight those categories evenly? Yeah. I'm really not sure. But moving on from my Iron <laughs> Chef experience, I didn't care that I didn't win and I would totally go back and do that show, but it's probably the only competitive show that I would do again yeah. I wouldn't I would never be a contestant on a show again I don't think I mean a knock on wood or whatever who knows like maybe I maybe I need to let's get to the point of this like chefs real chefs serious chefs like I don't know the kind that like cooked up through like Danielle and I mean like like take Gavin Kaysen for example like I mean maybe he has actually been on TV has he – he's been on a show.
1: Uh, he's got to be on one of those has, shows as a judge or something, if not a contestant. Well, I don't think he's been a contestant. Maybe but-
2: not. But anyway, I was thinking, you know, I feel that some people would like – and do kind of poo-poo the idea of being on a show. Selling out yeah big time and I'm like I just don't take myself that seriously frankly I'm like look I'm not even a trained chef like I didn't even like go work for any of these like old man chefs you know like I mean I didn't I didn't put my time in as a co and, you know, grow and, and change and, like, struggle and, you know, whatever. I, I started a catering company in my basement when I was 22. And I didn't really know what the fuck I was doing. And then I just kept trying stuff and people somehow decided that it was good. I mean, I just have – I have natural skill and I – really care about creating a team and I think that that's ultimately kind of what happened is that I keep my people around me really well I've had like half the people that worked used to work for me like will come back and work for me again um, so anyway long story short being on TV is something that I don't I don't have a particular position about I think I needed to do it and it was good for my career I didn't but I didn't go out into the world saying, like, I really want to get on TV. Right. Like it was cooking first, not fame first. I hate fame. (laughs) It's it's, It's terrifying.
0: (laughs) It seems kind of horrible.
1: What is the relationship now between Beast and expatriate bar? Like, do they have the same customers? Or married. Do they have their own? Beast and
2: expatriate are married.
0: You had this answer immediately. And you said it with such confidence. You have clearly thought about
2: this before. Like if you're well, if this were people, what would they be? It's actually physically true because my husband runs Expatriate uh, and I am married to him. Okay. <laughs> so it's it's not actually like a metaphor. But it is kind of a metaphor. Um one of us, expatriate, is like really, really fun and um kind of oh God, it's like it's so it has so much energy to it you know it's like dark like people have described it as being kind of like an opium den i make spaces really organically like i t- remember i told you earlier that like beast wasn't like this idea that i had where i was like i'm going to find a space where i can do a set menu and have two big long tables no first i found the space and then i was like oh this is what the space needs expatriate was the same way my husband designed it so it's very different than the way that beast looks beast is like kind of really um clean and like kind of feminine looking i do all the flowers for it so there's like beautiful flower arrangements um Yes, that's my next career, and um, the walls are like this beautiful dusty pink. That's like actually, I think the most popular color right now. I walked by Macy's last night, and like every single object in the thing was the du- same color as the Beast wall. Yeah,
0: dusty pink is
1: dusty really pink hot is right now. Rage. I feel like I've seen that in a lot of rest New York restaurants. Oh, actually, yeah, there's this whole like well. in New
0: York. I, I I feel like it's very hand in hand with New York's like ob- return to obsessing over French food. Is like this embracing of of the feminine.
2: Well, actually, it's you know what? Really I ate dinner at Estella last night, and um, I was with three she- other chefs, and we were all women, and we were talking about, like, how that food is so awesome. God, I love that restaurant. Because there is a femininity to the food. It there is, it, it is, like, it's balanced um, with some, like, what I want to call dude food, There's just this sort of, like, gut punch of, like, too much flavor, too much I'm trying to, like, put my mark on this thing. Our our national critic, Bill
0: Addison, actually wrote a column that touches on exactly this. I'm so excited. I think, like, this was the most brilliant insight he— So so Bill Addison, um, who's been a guest on the show before, his job is literally to travel the country eating at restaurants all over the U.S. And so he has this incredible— immersed experience in food and all of, like, what's happening in every single American city at once. And and he and I were eating together in Atlanta recently, and we were at Staple House, mm-hmm. which is, like, the coolest restaurant in Atlanta right now. And I pointed out sort of offhandedly, I mean, and Staple House is spectacular. It's absolutely wonderful. I loved my experience there. I loved every dish. And I pointed out how much the food reminded me in a way of the food at Wild Air and the food at Estella. Mm -hmm. And Bill was like, oh, my God, you're totally right. And we were were sort of riffing on this, and we were trying to figure out, like, what is the word that connects all of these restaurants? Like, what is the style of cooking? Because there is such a – exactly what you're talking about. Like, these are, like, primarily, like, it's men cooking this food that has a very delicate touch. And I was, like, thinking through my head, and I was like, it's romanticism. Mm -hmm. And Bill was like, no, it's bromanticism
1: romanticism and I was
0: like Jesus Bill that is brilliant you have to write a column about that right now and he did and it's on Eater and you can read it Cool. but like yeah it is I mean it's such a thing I think like you're totally right there is this aspect of the feminine like visually like there's ruffles like literally ruffles the ruffle out of a a mandolin radish but it's like delicate and thoughtful and beautiful and has that like re-embrace of the feminine that I think like that sort of like fuck you punch in the face flavor bomb food was rejecting
2: I think so and I think it's I think it's really interesting because it's also I think sort of you know when we've been talking today about sort of evolution and and growing up you know like you know becoming less like I don't I mean I don't know how to say this I don't want to be totally sexist but less like manly I mean like you know We're not yelling as much. We're not drinking as much. We're just kind of like everyone's sort of like there's a shift. And I think that there's part of it is a – like I'm going to say that like I think that California cuisine is also sort of like growing up as well. And like making – like we stopped just putting a peach on a plate or whatever and now it's it's like – we're very ingredient, like the ingredient focus has swept the nation, right? It's no, we're not, you know, it's not only on the West Coast and in, in cities that have farmers markets and things like that. People are trying to figure out, you know, how to let the food and the ingredients expand express themselves and so you're more like shepherding this thing into existence in, and, and trying to make it the best version of itself not like trying to be like I'm going to tell you how to be steak yeah. you know like I love that
0: well Naomi we have come to the portion of the show that we call the lightning round because we ask you questions in a somewhat lightning manner and you can answer them at whatever speed you prefer and sometimes our producer adds a, a thunder sound effect he actually has never done that and
1: I've always wanted him to so I just Hope it say happens it
0: today. in the hopes that when Maybe we'll make that change
1: today. Yeah. To
0: ask our lightning round questions, we have Eater's deputy editor Erin DeJesus, who used to run Eater Portland.
1: Yes, where ma'am. she
0: chronicled you and your goings on. She sure does. All right, Erin, welcome to the Eater Upsell. Hey, Naomi. This is
3: Erin, deputy editor of Eater, and also a huge fan of the Brunch at Beast. So I have some lightning round questions for you. What's the one dish you would be happy to literally never cook again?
2: Huh.
1: Charcuterie plate. No, just stumped. Kidding. I'm
2: stumped. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't have a dish that I would literally never ever want to cook again. I don't think. Ooh. 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 Um, no. I, I can. I can yeah. see the hate boiling up in you. Ugh. Let it. Flow it's not hate. You. It's just like. And I'm. I'm. I'm actually working on my relationship with salmon. But because um, you're in the Pacific Northwest, yeah, like, that's I'm, a thing. I am working on they it. They are. Um, there is a recipe. People love
1: salmon up there. There's a
2: recipe for salmon in my book, actually. That's how far my relationship has come um, since I vowed to really never eat or cook salmon again. Um, in like you know 2004 or something for like
0: personal emotional reasons.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just I, I I ran a catering company for like five years, and and um, every single wedding that I ever catered, that's what they ate. It was just like God, I'm so over it. Like the the smell of like breaking it down and like that. And when And okay, so when I go to a sushi restaurant and they're like, "Here's some raw salmon," I'm like, "No, sir." It's the only thing. I mean, I guess I'll eat it. Like, I pretty much will eat anything, but yeah, I would just salmon,
0: salmon, fuck salmon. We're striking salmon. I'm working
2: on it. No salmon. (laughs) I love. I love. Don't strike salmon. Like we protect salmon in the Pacific. Oh no, of course. Like we love them as animals. Yeah, I'd rather have them as animals. They're friends, not
0: food. Salmon are our friends. Good pets. Salmon are horrifying looking. If you ever like see photos of like, I mean, all the various varieties, like their faces are like monster faces. I think they're beautiful. I mean these can co monsters can be beautiful. That's true.
1: Aaron, do we have another lightning round question?
3: <laughs> so Expatriate is known for its DJ stand and its vinyl selection. What's the go to album when the room needs a little bit more energy? What about when you want people to calm down?
2: Yes. So For me, um, my go-to energy music is always Prince, I will say 100% assuredly. Um, well, does, we it, st- does it work on the, on the dining room, too? Like, if you put on prints, suddenly the whole vibe of the room is, like, yeah, everyone kind of is, like, really upbeat and also wants to have sex. Yeah. And I can also do whatever I want. So it's sort of like I just, yeah, sometimes I just put it on because yeah. I feel like it. Yeah. Um, when I need— Do you have
1: a turntable at, at Beast? No, um, Expatriate has
2: two turntables. They have a DJ system, and we play Expatriate nothing but vinyl, 100%. And um, at Beast, we just play—I make playlists and stuff. and and we all make playlists and we can do whatever we want. So energy-wise, Prince, um, to chill it out, um, D'Angelo, Sade. Like, I'm always just into, you know.
0: On both sides, this is doing it
2: music. I just want to point that out. Like, it's
0: upbeat sex with Prince and, like, slow romantic making love.
2: Well, food is, like, a thing. Yeah. You know, food and sex goes together.
0: All right, (laughs) Erin, what's next? If
3: you could transplant Beast or Expatriate to another city, where would that be and Why?
2: Oh, I would totally come here to new york yes. um with with beast i I would because I've always well we used to we used to call it Beast East, like we always had this plan, you know um the reason I wouldn't come to another city, I don't think, because I think all my friends who are doing that and I'm watching them try to run these multi-city restaurants, they seem like tired from flying all the time. And it seems like anxiety. Like what if your sous chef walks off the line and you're like, well, I need to go to Alabama right away or whatever.
1: It's um, kind of- no, no disrespect to the chefs that have restaurants in multiple cities, but it's kind of my part of my personal brand that I really, really love chefs that just stay in their own yeah. city. Yeah and just kind of like are all about I'm it.
2: doing that right now um although like Sometimes we also jokingly talk about, like, opening up an expatriate in Los Angeles because— um, Bars are different. Yeah, I think bars are a little different. I mean, we have a lot of food at expatriate because in Oregon, you know, you have to. Um, and also because I love cooking food that's so different than the food up east. Um, it's all, like, kind of crunchy and spicy and Southeast Asian in a way. Um, but, but ultimately, I think probably I'll just stay there. But maybe I'd go to New York or L.A. I don't know. Life is long, and it, actually, I'm going to also change my answer and say one other thing. If I could relocate Beast anywhere in the world, I would 1,000% move to Japan.
0: Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's. I feel like <laughs> that's the correct. And Aaron probably oh, completely agrees with Japan. that. Aaron just got back from a super cool trip to Tokyo. Um, <laughs> what's next, Aaron? Do you have more for us? Souffles are a big
3: part of your cookbook, so asking for all the bad cooks out there, what's your tip for saving a fallen souffle?
2: saving you well my tip for saving a fallen souffle is that you can't save it um and but my tip is fucking eat it like that's <laughs> that the whole thing about souffles being intimidating is is i think there's a lot of urban legend and myth and lore around these things um if you over mix your egg whites which is usually what happens to deflate a souffle um like even either in the initial whipping of it, the egg whites like you overdid it, and then they start to break. Um, they're just not going to lighten the souffle enough. It might be a little heavy, and it might sink in the middle. Um, or uh, you just uh, over. I mean, like if you if you take it out of the oven, it's going to fall. So it just it just is, and it's okay. It's the same ingredients whether it rises high or falls. So it's just. Uh, Just eat it. It tastes almost exactly the same. I mean, it's not – the texture is not as light and airy, but it's still awesome.
0: On an earlier episode of the upsell, we were talking with Julia Tersen, the cookbook writer, and she was telling us that she had this moment when she was was private chefing for a family. She was trying to make them a bourbon ice cream, and she had put too much bourbon into the ice cream, didn't freeze all the way. She was like, fuck, what do I do? And she was like, oh, I'll serve it as a milkshake. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like – you can totally turn your failures into
2: successes. In you fact, just need that's to be okay, okay with it. being a good chef or cook is all about like, or a good turning your owner.
1: failures into successes. Totally.
2: Hot tip: uh, Just tell everyone huh. it's a win.
1: Yeah. I'm just gonna think about that. Yeah, <laughs> here's this awesome thing I did. It's not a mistake.
2: <laughs> I actually really find honesty is is awesome because I. I love to stand up in front of people and say that chefs make mistakes too because I think it's important to humanize us. I also eat in front of people. Like if I'm tasting something on the line, I just taste it. I'm not one of those people that like ducks behind and – you know, because chefs are people too. So anyway, I think it's very important to say I fucked up this ice cream. It was going to be – this is how I would do it. I meant to make this but I screwed it up. And I, so I made this other awesome thing yeah. because then it actually liberates other people to think that they can make mistakes that, and change it, too, and that you're just a
1: person. Hey, Aaron, do we have uh, one more question for Naomi? Who's the one chef who you would love to
3: collaborate with but haven't had the opportunity to yet? Living or dead. I'm going to add that.
1: Well,
2: you made it harder by adding <laughs> living or dead. Um, In the entirety of human
0: existence.
2: Well, and I like the fact that it was the, the the question was about collaborating with the chef because it doesn't necessarily um like even have to be about like making a meal together. It could be a kind of any kind of collaboration. How you're I how think? you're lawyering this yeah. question. Yeah, okay. okay. Um so recently I um I met Alice Waters and um we had a really great conversation about education. And, you know, because she's obviously really into like the edible schoolyard and um, these projects and she has some other good ideas about how to teach kids about cooking, not just about gardening, but also food. So my answer is that I would like to collaborate on helping um, educate America's youth about how to cook some basic things. I think people should be graduating from high school knowing how to scramble eggs and such, um, and I f- I've- I think that they aren't. So I would say that I would like to collaborate with Alice Waters on changing the way that people relate to food and cooking. Lovely. That's awesome. I love I, it.
1: Yeah, I could imagine that happening, that though. It seems like a you know? really— It's
2: not like- far-fetched. We've already talked about it. And if it does happen,
0: oh. we can just say that the Eater Epsilon makes magic. Yeah. Yes, we're like appearing on the um, show as like doing the secret, just like say it into our microphones yeah. and it comes to pass.
2: I like it.
1: Ooh.
0: Then I have to be, I have to come back with a list. I know. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> and terrible power. Oh, uh, Naomi Pomeroy, thank you so much for coming by the Eater Upsell. If our listeners want to pick up a copy of your cookbook, if they haven't already, because honestly, it's an amazing book and it basically functions as a primer to teach you how to be a better cook. Um, they can get taste and technique. Anywhere.
2: Anywhere books are sold. Anywhere. and Naomi, where can we find you on social media? I am on Instagram at Naomi Pomeroy. And I don't Excellent. spend very much time on Twitter at Naomi Pomeroy.
1: <laughs> well, we'll check you out on
0: Instagram. Yeah, get me at Instagram. Yeah. And we'll just like lurk on your silent Twitter account. Naomi Pomeroy, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Naomi.
0: Yay! The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Gianone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulrich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener you. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.